0: If you're our guest here today, you're so very welcome. My name's James to lead the team here. We are continuing our series in the book of uh, Mark. We're in chapter 14. If you've got a Bible with you, don't worry if you haven't. It will all appear on the screen. And this is, we're in well into now, Jesus' last uh, week uh, on earth before he went to the cross. And today we're in a very familiar um, passage it all is really, but this is a very familiar, at least picks up a very familiar theme or topic or practice. This, if you've got your Bible with you, you'll see above verse 22 of Mark chapter 14, the institution of the Lord's Supper. And so we're, we're picking up this, uh, this st- the story of the Lord's Supper, sometimes in Scripture referred to as communion, sometimes referred to as the Lord's table, sometimes as the breaking of bread even sometimes as the Eucharist, uh, and it's really central, it's, it's central to the Christian faith. We're going to end today with uh, bread and wine together, and I will just, just want to kind of preface this at the beginning by saying, I, I think as a church, we've not got this right all the time, or much of the time, or any of the time. <laughs> um, and some of you kind of come from different traditions, or have just read your Bible, and you know that, um, we need to do something about it. starts with preaching through the Word of God and, and, and responding accordingly. Let's, let's pick this up from verse 12 of Mark 14. And so, on, and on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, this is Jesus with his disciples, his disciples said to him, where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, "'Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me.' They began to be sorrowful and and to say to him one after the other, "'Is it I?' And he said to them, "'It is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. "'For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, "'but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed.' It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. We're just going to pause there for a moment. They're eating. This is significant. They're having a meal. This is Passover. And Passover is the annual meal commemorating the defining moment in the history of Israel. It's the moment where the Israelites who were in slavery in Egypt were freed and delivered wonderfully by God himself. And Passover celebrates this moment. And the Passover meal had a structure, a set kind of form, a set structure to it that kind of celebrated and talked through the story. And significantly, there were four cups of wine in the the Passover meal. And each cup represents a different expression of deliverance Promised by God way back in Exodus six, so we're just going to look there real quick. Exodus six, uh, verses six to seven. See if you can see these kind of uh, four uh, these these four promises that is then ultimately represented in these four cups. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out. From under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. And I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. So the the, the Israelites are in Egypt, they're in they're in slavery, and God promises: I'll bring you out, I'll deliver you, I'll redeem you, I will take you to be my people so at passover meal obviously god did those things at passover meal it's it's celebrating looking back and celebrating the fact that god did indeed do all those things and so each time passover would be celebrated there would be somebody who was leading through the meal they would be the presider, if you like, and their job was to lead through the story and bless different parts of the meal. And so they'd take the first cup and they re- recite what's called the Kiddush, which is a, a blessing. And then they'd take the second cup and they would read the Exodus story. And then they'd take the third cup and they would recite kind of grace over the meal and then they'd take the fourth cup and they'd sing what's called the halal, which is the uh, Psalms 113 through Psalm 118. And they would basically bless different parts of the meal and it would explain the symbolism. So these are the herbs, this is the bread, this is the lamb. These are these are the herbs that are representing the bitter, that represent the bitterness and the harshness of the slavery that our people endured or this is the bread of our affliction which our fathers ate in the wilderness, and kind of so on. And this is what, in, right back here in Mark 14, this is what Jesus is doing, and what they are, his disciples are expecting him to do. So imagine their astonishment when the next bit happens, and what he says. So far, it's kind of been following through, just as it had done each year, and then we get to verse 22, and this verse 22 begins at the third part of the meal. Verse 26, and when they'd sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. That was the fourth part, the halal. We just need to grasp for a moment, because we're so familiar with the story. We we just need to grasp for a moment something which I've kind of been trying to highlight throughout this this whole series. That Jesus' life and death doesn't take place in a vacuum. The Old Testament and the the New Testament are intrinsically connected and linked. You need one to understand the other. You don't get the Old Testament without the New, and you don't really fully understand the New without the Old. We're not separating them out, two different distinct stories. We see again and again and again throughout the Gospel of Mark, Jesus looking back and looking forward. This is about that, and that is connected to this and somehow they're part of the same story. And to understand it fully, just the, the huge significance, because we can sit there and go, yep, yeah, okay, take the book, yep, yeah, we get that. No, but to understand the full significance, we need to understand Passover a bit more. So let's just go back to Exodus for a moment. The people of God, the Israelites, the Jews, they are in slavery in Egypt. And God raises up Moses to lead the people. And in Exodus 6, as we just looked at, God promises some deliverance. And in Exodus 7, Moses goes before Pharaoh and he says, let my people go. And Pharaoh says, no. And I just want to burst into Bohemian Rhapsody, but it's completely inappropriate. Let my pe- <laughs> I even looked it up to think, is that what it's about? No one knows. It's a shame because I wanted to sing it. Uh, let my people go. No, we will not let them go. Let them go. <laughs> no, and then we get to the plagues. It's gonna do it anyway. Get the plagues. It's definitely about that. Get the plagues in verse in in Exodus eight and nine and ten and eleven. And these plagues gradually kind of escalate and they just build in intensity. And so we're okay teaching the kids about water turning to blood. And we're okay about frogs. And gnats and then flies and death of livestock is getting a little bit there, but and then boils, yeah, no, they're just big spots, and then hailstorms, locusts, darkness, and then we stop. Because still, after nine plagues, Pharaoh still says no. And the Israelites are oppressed. Actually, it's not just he says no, they're oppressed worse and worse. There's just significant evil and injustice. And as we know from reading the rest of Scripture, God hates evil and injustice. And he says, hey, okay, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to bring down justice on the land. The final plague is coming. And it's the death of all firstborn sons. It's like a, a mini preview of judgment day. It's like, this is what is going to happen. Right now, this is happening. Everyone is subject to judgment. Judgment. The world's not split into good guys and bad guys. We like to read that story and think, well, the bad guys are the Egyptians. They're getting the judgment. The good guys are the Israelites, the Jews. They're not. No, no, no. Even in that story, everyone is being judged. But God says to Moses in Exodus 12, the only way you're going to survive is if you kill a lamb. You eat it that night. And you put the blood on your doorposts. Because when justice comes, if you've taken shelter under the blood of the lamb... Then there's hope for you. Let's read from Exodus 12. Pick it up in in verse 21. Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until the morning. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians but spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads and worshipped. Then the Lord of Israel went and did so as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. At midnight the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon. And all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night he and all his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go, serve the Lord, as you've said. Take your flocks and your herds, as you've said, and be gone, and bless me also. And so the Israelites begin their great escape, and they leave Egypt with great wealth. In verses 35 through 36, we see that they have an abundance of silver and gold and jewelry. And they have in verse 38, a huge amount of livestock, which is just representing God's abundance. And then in verse 38, we're told that they leave with an untold number of Egyptians as well. Wow, that's a staggering reminder of the promise of God that his blessing was ultimately not just for the Jews, but for all people. A bunch of Egyptians also did what the Jews did, and they escaped too. And in chapter 13, verse 19, we're told that they take Joseph's bones with them, with them as well. And you think, what's that about? It's just representing God's faithfulness to his promises, what he says he does, and it shall come to pass. And then they leave as well, incredibly, with the presence of God. Verse Chapter 13, verse 22 says, The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. It's this incredible story that we're so familiar with. We miss the, the, the drama and the incredible acts of God. It's a incredible story of dramatic rescue and redemption. So back to Mark 14 for a moment. Because you can picture the scene, right? They're kind of, they've been through this before. Jesus is doing it. They'll have prayed. They'll have heard this and read this story again. Jesus leading them through this meal. He's blessing the food. He's explaining the symbolism. And then he suddenly talks of something very, very different. He takes the bread and he says, This is my body. This is the bread of my affliction, of my suffering. And he stands before them and he says, The meal, this meal that was observed the night before God rescued Israel from slavery, when through Moses God acted to redeem and rescue and deliver and free his people from Pharaoh, tonight, once again, we are eating this meal just before the moment where God once again is going to act decisively and definitively in human history to rescue and redeem and deliver his people again from sin, death and evil and he's going to do it all through me, says Jesus. I will bring you out. I will deliver you. I will redeem you. See, Jesus didn't just choose a night and then deliver a lecture on what's about to happen. This is not just about creating an, an analogy. He's not saying my coming death is a, is a little bit like the death of the Passover lamb. He's not saying that your liberation from sin and, and slavery and death is a little bit like their liberation from slavery in Egypt. He chose Passover because he is the ultimate fulfillment of everything that the Passover celebration was designed to teach. This is the forming of a new covenant. And this is simply stunning because in the Exodus story, we have the death of firstborn sons. Jesus is the firstborn son who dies on that cross under a darkened sky. And in doing so, opens up the doors to his father's house. In the Exodus story, we have the sacrificing of a blemish-free lamb whose smeared blood leads to rescue Jesus is the Passover lamb slain in our place whose blood proclaims freedom in place of condemnation. In the Exodus story, there's this epic showdown as the people cross the, the Red Sea with Pharaoh, who's the great enemy, and his armies closing in, looking to kill and devour the people of God. And victory for Pharaoh and his army is seemingly there. That moment they're about to come to the Red Sea, it looks like we're stuck. We're about to lose. We're about to be killed and devoured by the enemy. The defenseless Israelites have got no hope. And then in a miraculous moment of divine Intervention. The enemy, Pharaoh, and all his armies are drowned in an incredible moment of deliverance. Jesus is the one who in the ultimate showdown overcomes the greatest of enemies and drowns death itself in death precisely at the moment that it looks like the enemy has won the victory. See, Jesus is the true Moses. He is the true shepherd who leads his people out. Jesus is the true mediator who makes a way for his people from all backgrounds. No matter what race, background, culture, creed that you are from, he makes a way for all people to be included in the story. Jesus is the true bread of life. When you feast off him, you're never going to go hungry and his manner is never going to run out. And Jesus is the true Lord of the wine, the one of victory and rejoicing and partying now and forever. And Jesus is the one who eats the herbs of bitterness for us so that we don't have to eat it. And Jesus is the one who goes before us, who now says, hey, come follow me so that we might pass over to dry land. This is all Jesus for us. Wow. And so now everyone who puts their trust in Jesus, that's you today, all of this is coming your way. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 5, 7 declares, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. In other words, it's because the blood of Jesus is applied not to the doorposts of our homes, but to our hearts, that through faith, the wrath of God passes over us, and we are set free. So now, when we take the bread and the wine, and take it, we have to do. Back to Mark chapter 14, look verse 22, Jesus says, take, you have to actually take it And as you do take it, his death and resurrection becomes life-transforming if you take it. You see, his death and resurrection, if you don't receive what he has done, if you don't receive him, it's life-transforming but not for you. You have to take it of yourself it's not, well, okay, my family member, my wife, my son, my siblings, my, my parents, whatever, they've taken it, so I'll be okay. No, no, you have to take it of yourself. It was not okay. The Israelites that well, my neighbors got blood smeared over their door. I had to have it over my door. You have to take it. And Jesus says, I want my death to be remembered through a meal. This is just hugely significant. You think about a meal for a moment. If you're starving, like, actually, like physically for a moment, you're starving hungry, There can be a huge steaming plate of food in front of you, and unless you actually take it and put it in your mouth and eat it, you're still going to be starving. And yet so many of us, there's an invitation right there. Come, eat. Come, feast. Come, drink. You're thirsty. Come and drink. And we sit there looking at the drink and not taking it and wonder why we're thirsty. Come, eat. Come, feed. Come, get this in you and we wonder why we're hungry. It's all there. We don't take it. We don't eat it. We don't get it in us. You can have as many different collections and as many different styles and leathers and hardback and softback and wide margins and coloring in pages that you want. Unless you take it and eat it, you're going to starve. You're going to walk around malnourished and you're going to wonder why. The teaching is not good enough. It doesn't feed me. If this is the only moment you eat of this in a week, you're going to starve. Take. And as you do, as you take Jesus, as you take his word, as you drink from his spirit, it transforms and changes you. And now if you're a believer in Christ, when you take the bread and wine, we're now partaking in something. We're eating a meal with God himself. Paul in 1 Corinthians eleven, twenty-three, verse 26 says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he'd given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so in a moment, as we take this bread and this cup, we are partaking in a declaration. And we're partaking in a declaration of many things, but at at least three that I just want to focus in on right now. And the first is this, we're partaking in a declaration that salvation belongs entirely to the Lord. Look at verse 25 with me for a moment of, uh, of Mark 14. Truly, I say to you, Jesus says, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. This is Jesus making a commitment here. This is Jesus making an oath it's so what biblically we would describe as, as kind of like a blood oath. He's saying, I'm not going to do something until that happens. I'm not going to eat or drink until I get this thing done. In scripture, we see all kinds of oaths like this. Sometimes they're kind of negatively. So in Acts 23, in verse 12, there's, uh, Paul has these, these enemies and they say, hey, we're not going to eat or drink until we kill Paul, making this oath. Until that's done, I'm not going to do this. Often we see these kind of blood oaths in in the Old Testament. Exodus 24, you can read it later, is an example. We're going to do this, the people say. We're going to make an elite, this is more positive, we're going to make an allegiance to God, and they spill blood on it. They say, we're not going to do that, we're going to do this, lest we die. But what happens in, in the Old Testament particularly, is that these oaths are made from inferiors towards superiors, if you know what I mean. They're people who's like to God, say, I- I'm, we're going to do this lest we die. And it rarely ever happens the other way around. Superiors don't make kind of these oaths, these commitments, these promises to their inferiors. But this oath, that's completely the other way around. This is Jesus promising and committing to us. He's saying, I am unconditionally committed to blessing you. I won't give up on this, says Jesus, and it will take me to die to see it through. That's how committed I am to you. I will, says Jesus, bring you into the Father's kingdom. I will bring you home. If you've got your Bible open, just look to verse 27. It says, and Jesus said to them, you will all fall away for it is written, I'll strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Jesus basically says, you're all going to fail me. Every single one of you here around this table, you are all going to fail me. Verse 31, Peter tries to make the oath. He says, no, no, no. If I, if I must die with you, I'll not deny you. And they all said the same. He said, no, no, no. I'm going to see this. I'm going to do this or else I'm going to die. And Jesus says, yeah, no, you won't. Verse 27, he says, you will fail me. But look at verse 28. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. He literally says, I will pick you up on, from Galilee after my resurrection. You're going to fail me. You're not going to see this. No, we promise we won't. No, you will, but don't worry about it because I'm going to swing by and pick you up from your house on the way through. This is literally what he says. I, no, no, Jesus, we, we promise we're not going to fail. No, you will. Don't worry about it, but I've got you. I'll pick you up on the way. What's this all about? This is Jesus saying, listen, your salvation is not dependent upon your commitment to me, but on my commitment to you see, in the Exodus, the Israelite families were not saved by their personal godliness. They were not saved even by the amount of faith that they had. It wasn't like paint big, thick red lines if you have a lot of faith, and little ones if you have a little bit of faith, and maybe just a dash of it if you're not really sure but you're hedging your bets. No, it was you put the blood over the door, you're saved. There is no kind of only if you have good and you've done this, this, and this. No, you put your trust in this, you will be saved. They were simply saved by the fact that blood was smeared above their house. And exactly the same way, Jesus says, you ain't going to be saved by your own efforts. You're not going to be saved by the quality of your commitments. You're not going to be saved by the quality of your faith or by the quality of your service, by how much you do or don't do. You will fail me, but I'll never fail you. Salvation belongs to the Lord. The point of the Lord's Supper is to remind me of this. Is to drive this gospel deep into my heart to remind myself that I that I depend upon his commitment to me, not my commitment to him. Now, don't get me wrong, you need to make a commitment at one point. There needs to be this moment where you say, I trust you. But the security of my salvation is not dependent upon my performance, but on his perfect one to me. And taking the bread and wine is a declaration. Look back what God has done and he's not failed me yet and he'll never fail me. Thank you, Lord, for my salvation, my identity, everything, my security is now based not upon what I do, But upon what he has done, and it is very secure for me. This is a part, as we take this bread, as we take this wine, this is a declaration that salvation belongs to the Lord. Do not forget. Do this in remembrance of me. Why? Because we forget. And we start basing our lives and our security and our identity on what we do and how we perform and what other people think of us. And we slide to it so very, very quickly, even though we know the truth taking in the communion in the Eucharist, in, in the Lord's table, in the Lord's Supper is this moment of driving it deep into our soul. Do not forget. And this frees me as some very good news. Second declaration: it's a declaration of unity and community. The context of a Passover meal was the entire households ate together and ate an entire lamb, with none of it left over till the morning. This is the basis, brothers and sisters, of our unity. Your belief in Jesus, your trust in Jesus, your turning away from your old life, your repentance and your 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 confidence now in the work of Jesus on the cross, that brings you now into a new community. we are family now, and so we eat and we rejoice and we partake together, whoever we are and from whatever backgrounds we come the exodus story i, I just I love this exodus twelve verse thirty eight it includes people from different nations. It says a mixed multitude is joined to Israel. We tend to read the story and skip over that. It's just the Jews who are out. No, a mixed multitude is joined to Israel and is allowed now to share the Passover as long as they're circumcised. Because of Jesus, we too are now allowed to join this great celebration and we don't need to get circumcised. Our way in is repentance and baptism, which is another great sacrament. Repent and be baptized. It's a public declaration of now I belong to this new family. I belong to this community now. My old has gone. The new has come. And God has joined me. If you're not baptized, moment to do so. If you're a believer today, you get to join this with others from every tribe and every tongue. And we're now joined together as family, brothers and sisters, new community. And we need one another. And we need to be right with one another as well. Paul in... 1 Corinthians 11 says, Do not partake from the Lord's table in an unworthy manner. He says, Don't do it. Deal with disagreements before you take. Deal with unforgiveness before you take. It's not okay in the family of God to go, I'll eat on that side of this room because I don't want to dissociate with the people on that side. I got a bit of a falling out with someone over there, but it's okay because we've got six tables, so I'll just stay away. Deal with it. Paul says, Don't come in an unworthy manner. That's not our right standing before the Lord. It's about our relationships with one another. As we eat and drink, it's a declaration of unity. Jesus is the head, we're part of the body, and it's a declaration of community, all are welcome, no matter what your background, every tribe and tongue. Third declaration is that the best is yet to come. Obviously. You see, the fact that Passover is fulfilled does not mean that it's finished. Jesus in these verses is both looking back and he's looking forward. This is not just about gratitude for what God has done. It's about hope for what he is doing. Look at verse 25, one day we will eat and drink in the kingdom of God. There will be new wine, there will be a new kingdom, there will be a new creation, there will be new bodies, there will be a new deliverance, and he will be with us and us with him forever. And so no matter how messed up your life might feel right now, eating at the Lord's Supper, eating at the Lord's table, having communion, sharing the bread and wine is a declaration that better the best, is yet to come. I'm going to get there because Jesus has unconditionally committed to me that I will get there. And my getting there is not based on me or my performance, but on his. And so it's a declaration of hope. It's a declaration that no matter how dark it is, there is light coming. It's a declaration that no matter how messy and difficult everything seems, there is a day coming where all of that will be but a distant, 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 distant memory as we enjoy eternity with him. And so as we take the bread and wine we're looking back but we're also looking forward. And as we take the Eucharist it, it is serious. Paul in, in 1 Corinthians 11 it's, it's a, there's quite sober warnings. It's like it's a get right with God, get right with one another. Verse 11 of uh, uh, sorry verse 30 of 1 Corinthians 11 says this is why some of you are weak and ill and why some of you have died. Like we can skip over that verse but it's there. This is serious. But it's not sad see the elements of the bread and the wine they lead us to the cross but they never leave us there the elements of the bread and the wine of the remembering they're designed to carry us to an empty tomb and a celebration of the risen christ and his soon return is it possible to be both reverent and rejoicing absolutely it is it has to be otherwise what are we doing so I have an somber, or, oh, yeah, whatever. No, there's a moment of reverent rejoicing in the presence of a holy God that my sin is forgiven. Thank you, Jesus. That one day I'm going to be with you. Thank you, Jesus. That in every moment you're going to see me through. Thank you, Jesus. Oh, I'm going to align myself with you and get right with my brothers and sisters. See, this shapes our worship. If Adrian and the guys could come back, this, actually, the, the practice of, of, of communion of the Lord's Supper, this shapes our worship. It's a looking back. As we do in our worship, thank you for my salvation. Thank you that this life you've won for me on the cross. Wow, what a salvation. It's all of you, Lord. And it's a reminder to ourselves of that. But it's also a looking forward. Look where we're going. Look what's coming. Hold on. Don't quit. Look what's coming. Hold on. I can't wait to get there. But this moment of bread and wine, we're going to end with this, is also hugely important because this is a declaration of victory. It's a declaration of God's victory. Just back to Exodus for a moment. Exodus 15. After God has delivered and rescued them, what do they sing? Because they sing. Look at Exodus 15, verse 1. I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. Verse 2. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. Verse 6, your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. Verse 7, in the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. Verse 11, who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? Verse 13, you have led in your steadfast love the people you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode victory belongs to our God Jesus wins and so therefore so do we can we stand to our feet we're going to sing a declaration right now that Jesus wins we're going to stir our souls we're going to stir our hearts we're going to remind these weak and feeble frames that God has won that God is winning and that God is yet to win further. We're going to look back and say, look what you have won for me. And we're going to stand here and say, I believe it right here, right now. And we're going to look forward and say, this is what you are leading me into. We're going to sing a declaration of victory. And then we're going to go and we're going to take the bread and we're going to take the wine and we're going to be reverent and rejoicing. And we're going to pray for and with one another in reverent rejoicing. Because some of us right now, it feels like dark. It feels like night. There's hope coming. And we're going to pray that into one another. Because victory is won. There's hope coming. For some of us, we know we need to loosen up a little bit. We need to walk a little bit in the freedom. We we walk around with, like, there's things stuck up our backside. Because kind of spiritually speaking and emotionally speaking, there is. Freedom comes when we partake in the bread and the wine, in the victory of Jesus. And for every single one of us, we're going to say, I stand here today as a brother or a sister in Christ. I'm not better than you. I'm not worse than you. There's no inferiors and superiors because our superior, Jesus Christ, has made a way for one new man in Christ. And now we stand here unconditionally loved, completely committed to by Jesus, who was and is and is to come. Brothers and sisters, let's sing song of victory. Let's go and partake in some wine. We're going to sing, and then we'll lead you through a that bit, and we're going to pray. Jesus wins. Thank you, Lord.